Welcome, friends, to this amazing utopia. Slavery has ended, and all is well. And in this quiet little town called Tulsa, African-Americans gleam in their self-made haven. But you know the saying, nothing good lasts forever. I hope to explore why this idyllic town this utopia for blacks was brutally destroyed in this supposed land of opportunity. So for those of you who don't know, we're talking about the Tulsa race riots and massacre of 1921. How bad was the destruction, you ask? Well, picture 10,000 people homeless, 35 blocks burned, 800 people injured, and 300 people left dead. <laughs> Sobering, isn't it? And to think that this sad tale isn't a result of war or a failed state. This is simply because of an accusation. Yeah, there was an accusation um, that a, a black man named Dick Rowland had assaulted a white woman whose name was Sarah Page. And, you know, the way the story goes is that something occurred in an elevator in a building called the Drexel Building in uh, downtown Tulsa. And somehow the police were called after they heard what they thought was a girl screaming. By the way, that voice was that of Professor Chris Messer, expert in the Tulsa massacre. Mm, I heard the police arrived. Didn't arrest him at first, but did so the following day without any proof. And talking about proof, the Tulsa Tribune, who practiced forms of yellow journalism, published an article that argued that Roland expressed intention of rape. So instead of whites waiting for the investigative process to play out, um, they read this in the Tulsa Tribune. They showed up at the courthouse and blacks in the community had gotten word that they thought that a black man would be lynched. And so they go there hoping to stop the lynching. Now, I don't mean to interrupt Professor Fain, who is our second Tulsa expert, but I'm just fascinated with the concept of lynching. I know, Professor Messer, you mentioned it in your work. Uh, yeah, lynching was um, very uh, common during this particular period. It was a crime that uh, was often not treated as a crime from a criminal justice standpoint. And oftentimes these, these went unfettered uh, to the extent that, you know, if law enforcement did put up a fight in terms of trying to prevent the lynching, they often were either unsuccessful or, in some cases, not very actively trying to prevent that in the first place. I know that sociologist C. Wright Mills stated that those in power 
work for their own interests, not for the interests of their citizens. And so I can imagine how these lynchings were unfettered because the deaths were not affecting them or anyone around them. Despite it not being fair, the single elite decides life and death issues on the whole. So while the blacks were in the courthouse defending Roland, a shot was fired. No one knows from whom, but everything went south. The blacks returned to their district, the Greenwood district in Tulsa, confused and frightened. The white mob starts to grow. They begin getting more riled up. The National Guard does a mass arrest of African-Americans and while blacks are gone, the white mob steal from the blacks, confront the blacks that were not arrested, attack and kill them. Imagine seeing that mob, that crowd coming for your family. Faces stone cold, many out for blood. Now theorists over the years, such as Le Bon and Park, analysed and wrote about crowd behaviour to be this irrational group that could easily be persuaded to violence. And I'm sure the white mob in Tulsa could be excused for some of the acts they've done using this line of thought. And that perspective really kind of paints the picture of uh, of this mob in which everybody turns into this zombie-like, somehow form this zombie-like collectivity where no one's really aware of what they're doing. But what research has um, shown time and time again on people involved in collective violence is that they're fully aware of what they're doing. You know, they may be engaged in actions that they might not normally engage themselves in on a daily basis. So there, you know, there's something about this larger group context that influences individuals, but that's true in every group context. But the yeah, the idea that they're acting irrationally, that they're not aware of what they're doing, um, all evidence points to the contrary. Wow. I love how you phrased that, Professor. People involved in collective violence know fully what they're doing. I mean, to criminally convict someone of a crime, you have to demonstrate two points. The actus reus, the conduct of a crime, and the mens rea, the intention of committing. So we know there were actions of libel by the Tulsa Tribune, theft and murder by the whites, and unlawful detention, which all are conducts of crimes that were committed. But we also know that they knew fully what they were doing. This mob was criminally liable. Professor Fain, I know your research provides more insight as to why the white mob showed intention and motive. Could you elaborate? So you already have this white resentment of the prosperity. And like, for example, you have two airports in Oklahoma, but six black families own their own planes, which is very uncommon. Um, I mean, there, I know a number of wealthy people that are black that don't own their own planes now. That is uncommon now. And it was very uncommon back then. 
And in my article, one of the things I did is I quoted Josie Pickens, um, who wrote for Ebony. She said that um, they had, it was modern, majestic, sophisticated, and unapologetically Black um, mm. community hosted at banks, hotels, cafes, uh, clothiers, movie theaters, and contemporary homes. Um, there were luxuries like indoor plumbing and a remarkable school system. So that's just an example of the prosperity that they had, you know, um, in the 1910s um, and in 1921 when this happens, when the massacre happens. All this jealousy provides a solid reason for them to intentionally destroy Greenwood. There is concern. Okay, they're going to gain more political power. They're going to gain more political representation. If they get more of this representation, they will be able to change their circumstances. And I know if the Blacks changed their circumstances, they would be able to gain more and more economic power. I know Marx once said that the structure of society was actually dictated by the nature of the economy. This argument helps explain why American whites were so threatened by Blacks. And then you have this whole concept or idea again of saying, okay, Blacks are inferior. You're seeing the community thriving. And so the message of white supremacy was very inconsistent with the success that they had. So it makes what happens very easy to see. And talking about economics, I know it had a huge role to play when enacting the segregation laws in America at the time. Yeah, uh, so... You know, the Greenwood District was, you know, like most Southern communities, it was very deeply segregated with very clear marks of segregation. And certainly we know that as White's way to create these social, economic, political boundaries, but, and it is certainly did restrict the movement of, of Blacks in Tulsa. And it certainly restricted what kinds of opportunities they had and what kind of, you know, educational access they had and so on. Because remember, the argument is we have to keep them separated because they are not equal to us in morals. They are not equal to us in terms of the work ethic. They are not equal to us because we are just simply better. Like I said in the beginning, America is definitely not the land of opportunity for all. To add to that point, the segregation was intrinsically linked to how society painted Blacks. Blacks were often criminalised in the media and became part of a suspect population. Arguably, this is why African Americans had to be so sensitive to public order. Because just like Roland, an everyday act could be construed as a crime. And again, having a suspect population with an increased surveillance is technically not legal. As in the US Constitution, all men were supposedly created free, no better than the other. This was clearly not the case. So far, we've seen that the destruction of Tulsa can be attributed to jealousy, resentment, fear of economic dominance, the maintenance of white supremacy, and the need for the inferior blacks to remain in their place, so to speak. But as we have discussed before, the white mob knew fully what they were doing. They were criminally liable, but yet they were never convicted. If you ask one of the survivors if they received any reparations, they would proceed to tell you no, 
No one was found guilty. No one recognised their suffering. And to make matters worse, they are told not to talk. Now I'm going to change things up a bit. What can you hear? These are all sounds from 2020. From hashtag Black Lives Matter to hashtag Say Her Name. And oh, they're definitely talking, shouting, crying out for help. Because they're done with being silenced. They're done with being murdered, receiving no justice and no reparations. The story of Dick Rowland continues today in a different form, with the unjust criminalization of blacks. You see, you listen to the podcast up to this point to see why Tulsa occurred. But you're really learning why race relations are still so fragile now. And this is because of one word, systemic racism. This is a special type of racism which permeates various structures and institutions. It is embedded in our society, just like during the destruction of Tulsa. Those that commit racially charged crimes are pardoned. Those who have authority to prevent the crimes look the other way. The systemic racism that you see that allowed this to happen um, are a lot of the same things we're dealing with now. Back then, Blacks were demanding equality. We're demanding equality now. Um, You have, back then, whites were perceiving Blacks' demands for wages and working conditions as a communist threat. You still hear some politicians in America make comments saying, calling um, full activists, uh, BLM, communists, because they're asking for fair work conditions and wages. And you still have that same argument. So some of the same arguments that we heard back then, we're hearing now. And it's so interesting to talk with others about the concepts of systemic racism. I know many people I've spoken to have a problem believing it still exists today. But I've come to realise that if you are not the one being targeted, it is easier to turn a blind eye. That's why I can understand how the Tulsa race riots and massacre were not really taught in most curriculums at American schools, nor were there many memorials, because the racial majority in America, which are um, white people, were not really affected by this. Um, And again, with systemic racism, you're talking about racism that is occurring in every system and every structure. You run into it with law, you run into it with healthcare, you run into it with housing, you run into it with schools, you run into it everywhere you go. And it works together to keep one group on top and keep other groups on the bottom. Fortunately, we've had progress, but um, the tactics of oppression have not changed. I believe one modern tactic is gentrification. I mean, arguably, it's another fancy way to talk about forcing people off their land who are deemed not desirable enough to live there. And like you said, what happens now happened then. What happened then continues to happen now. And so when you have back then, when you have the massacre that happens, part of what they're trying to do is they want the land to build a railroad on it. 
because that's going to represent white progress, this railroad. And they decide they want the land that Blacks are on and they don't want to pay them for that land. And so when this incident happens, it allows an opportunity um, basically to get that land and to get that land at a very low cost because many Blacks that um, even though everything was destroyed, they were not really to, able to get a good price for that land versus if their house had been on, on it and their property had been nice. And a lot of them probably wouldn't have sold anyway. Um, so land represents money, represents power. And it's all a power game, really. I mean, some argued the primary reason that the Tulsa race riots and massacre happened is just whites asserting their dominance over the blacks. And even after the blacks had to leave their land, and after the whites were enriched by it, the narrative stated that it was all done for a good cause. I think framing them as this criminally oriented population, they could generate more public support for their efforts to just remove the community altogether. But then, Having said that, there's also has been a very long tradition in America that predated that riot, and it certainly still exists today, of whites believing that the blacks and, and other minority groups are somehow more prone to mm. committing crime. Mm. And so, you know, they, they attempted to create this image of at least black Tolsons, as being part of a population in which crime was just rampant and out of control, even though the crimes that they complained of were crimes that could easily be found within the larger white community, and in fact were. Uh, you know, there, were, there was a federal investigation just before the riot that had talked about the problems of crimes like uh, bootlegging and prostitution being problematic in the city of Tulsa, but that federal investigation made no mention of the black community as being the source of the problem. In fact, they, they were white districts that were being seen as the host of those problems. So internally, they tried to create this image of the Greenwood community being out of control but it, it simply didn't align with the reality. I agree. It's saddening to know that the image of blacks from Tulsa were tarnished after they had suffered through so much. I think I found that part of the story, for some unusual reason, the most distressing. But my mum would always say, that there's two sides to every story. And even though the victims of the race riot and massacre had no voice then to tell their truth, I'm assured that more people than ever are using their platform to speak up about it now. Well... I'd like to thank my two experts for helping me uncover the horrors of Tulsa and for learning about the resentment, racism and rage that acted as a catalyst. 
It's good that we can speak about such a timely topic, since we know that the factors that influence Tulsa continue to happen today, even if not to the same extent. But we must try to morally condemn what happened, only because if we don't, history is bound to repeat itself.